Thanks, Ben. Great job. Well, as you're having a seat, church, if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians. If you are new with us, uh, we are going through the book of Ephesians right now, and we have Ephesians scripture journals on the back table. And so that's the ESV translation. Uh, one side is the text of Ephesians, and the other side is just blank pages, and it allows you to interact with God's Word uh, as we're teaching through it. Also in community groups, we're discussing God's Word together. It just uh, serves as just a place where we're getting to hear God's Word here on Sunday morning. We're getting to journal about it, think about it, pray God's Word, and then we're getting to discuss it uh, as a church together in community. So I encourage you to take one of those uh, as our gift to you and have it to have with you uh, here on Sunday mornings as we walk through it. Um, that's sort of the, the, the standard norm, if you're new with us, of how we teach through the scriptures here at Providence North. We, we go through books of the Bible uh, and we go verse by verse. And what that allows us to do as God's people is to, uh, rather than simply just take topics that, that are and would be really helpful to us, uh, we walk through uh, God's word as he gives it to us and we lay our lives on top of it. And so we say, Lord, let us uh, be molded and shaped by uh, what you're saying and how, and as we go through it, all these different um, topics spring up for us. And so that's sort of the meat and potatoes of what we do here at Providence North of uh, books of the Bible, verse by verse. We differ from that occasionally, uh, but not usually. So we pick up. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 22. Paul's writing this letter to a church that was planted, and he's giving them an eternal perspective. He's giving them and giving us a heavenly perspective of reminding us, though oftentimes we kind of get caught up in the nitty-gritties and we get caught up in the everyday stuff that sort of bogs us down, maybe that discourages us, maybe that uh, weighs us down. Paul is going to write this letter to this church and he's going to say, look up. Look up at all that God has done. Look at the wonders that he's done for you. And he's going to remind us of the truths of this big God that came down to save you and I and call us a new people of God. And so we're going to pick up here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can read along with me on the screens behind me if you'd like. Remember, therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. In him, you are also being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Well, I'm going to speak to the guys real quick in the room. Guys, uh, when you kind of enter into a new, uh, a, a new group of people, maybe you're at a party, maybe you're at a gathering, maybe you're at a kid event, and you're meeting some people for the very first time, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't normally do this, so I'm, I'm going to expect a response here just so you know. So normally you'd all be quiet. But you walk into this new group of people, and you, uh, you begin talking. What's, as guys, what is one of the... Maybe this is the same for girls, I, I don't know. But for guys, what is the thing that just springs up the, uh, very quickly in that conversation that kind of gives us common ground to begin talking to each other? What's one question that inevitably within like 10 minutes of talking to someone new, you end up asking that person? Yeah, all the guys are like, well, what do you do? What do you do for work? Like inevitably, it's usually within the first... Depending on how, like, depending on your social IQ, it's either the first three seconds or the first five minutes, right? And so uh, you, you just kind of get together, and we run out of things to say, like, in four seconds, if you're like me, and you just kind of default to, like, hey, so what do you do? Oh, well, what do you do? And it usually go, if you're around here, it usually goes something like this. Well, I'm in upstream, I'm in midstream, I'm in downstream, I'm in exploration, I'm in finance, I'm in whatever it is, right? And this sort of kind of goes down the streams. I don't know what any of those mean, but I hear that a lot. <clears throat> um, so that's inevitably just kind of what happens. There's sort of this, and, and we're trying to find common ground with one another as we talk to each other, right? And we say, and something pings, it's like, oh, well, I sell this, or I sell that, or I do this, or I count things over here. And you're like, okay, and, and that kind of helps further another 35 seconds of conversation, right? And so that's kind of how guys just work, right? That's just the mind of your average guy. Well, my neighbor, uh, uh, an old neighbor of mine, before we moved into the house uh, my wife and I are currently in, uh, his name is David. And so for me, that's always sort of a little bit of a weird situation for most people. Because um, inevitably, that always comes up. And I always let them ask first, right? And so, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. What? what? Really? Like, like, it's like you're this alien or something. Like, are you serious? You don't look like a pastor. I'm like, well, what are they supposed to look like? I don't know. So, and so they find out I'm a pastor, and my neighbor, he eventually found this out. Our kids used to play out in the cul-de-sac and ride scooters, and David found out that I was a pastor, and David was like, like Catholic, right? He was, he was Catholic all grown up. He currently goes to the Catholic church, and I was told him I was a pastor, so he's like, oh, okay, cool. Well, tell me about your church. And a guy, a guy from like a super Catholic background, just, he, he's like the big building, the big Catholic thing, and I was telling him what we're doing, and at the time when we were neighbors, we were just starting our church in the living room, like we were just meeting with like five people in a living room, and I was telling him about this, and he was looking at me like I was an alien. He was like, you're doing what? It's like, oh, it, it, kind, of, it kind of went like this, oh, cool. Okay, geez. He's like, he's probably doing this. Please don't invite me to your church in the living room, right? He knew it was coming, and he was like just sort of drifting away, and he's like, well, how about the Texans? And right, he just quickly changes the subject, right? It goes from spiritual resume to don't ask me any more questions, typically when I tell people what I do. That's kind of how it goes, right? It was just foreign to him. And then as time went on, I was like, hey, yeah, now we're meeting in a dance studio. He was like, 
<laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> that sounds lovely. No, I'm not coming. Um, thanks for the invite. Stick to my pews and my giant, huge building that I love, right? But David was from Chicago, so he has this great Chicago accent. He was from up north. David, he kind of like, I left one shirt button opened up as a prop today. He, he would have left two or three more. And he, he wore this gold chain, and it had a crest on it. And uh, we would just, we'd inevitably start talking to each other. And finally one day, just, you know, we, 35 seconds, out of, we ran out of things to say. So it's like, Oh, David, tell me a little bit. What, is, what does that crest mean? He obviously wanted you to see it because he unbuttoned his shirt so far down that it was clearly visible at all times. And, uh, and I asked him, hey, man, tell me about that crest on your shirt right there. And uh, he's like, oh, the, I'm a, I don't know if he sounds like a mobster. My, I'm going to do my best here, okay? He's like, oh, it's from it's Luca, Italy. It's my family crest. He's like the northern accent. I don't know if that's right, but... The, and then I imagine in my brain, he probably never said this, but as I remember the story, he says, forget about it. It's a Luca. It's my Luca crest, right? It's, it's where I'm from. It's where my grandmother's from. And we, I'm Italian. I'm a full-blood Italian. I go every year and we go back to the motherland and forget about it. Get out of here. Right? And he punches me. So I don't know if he really said all those things, but I, that's kind of how I remember it, right? And I go, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. You're a Luca Italy I said, never, I've never heard anyone from Luca, Italy. He goes, my, my grandmother, she's from Luca, Italy. Her name is Cecilia Francesconi, and she's, she, she's from Luca, Italy. And his, he looks at me like, what? He goes, forget about it, you're a Lucchese. And he hugs me. This dude that was like, don't ask me any questions, we'd run out of things to say in 30 seconds, is now hugging me, and he's saying, you, you and your family are coming over. We're going to have some spaghetti and meatballs. I don't know what he cooks. We're going to have the chicken parmesan, right? He go, lists off all these uh, wonderful, di- he's like this amazing cook. And sure enough, we go over there and we have this amazing Italian meal at some point at their, over at their home. And we go from this guy that was like, please don't talk to me anymore, like you weirdo that meets in a dance studio, to, oh my gosh, you're a Lucchese. You're like a quarter Italian. Forget about it. Let's, let's, let's hug. We're like basically brothers now. He just couldn't believe it, right? And so we're hugging, and it's this great reunion of like long lost, maybe we're related somehow. I don't know. To him, we're, we might as well be like live in the same house at this point. Just from one simple fact, it like completely abolished all the weirdness that we had. And I was all of a sudden in his home sharing a meal. He's like wanting to pour me wine. He's like, this is what we do. This is from Luca. Like, my grandfather made this. I goes, oh my gosh, right? It was like we were brothers. That's what this text is all about. This kind of strange text we just read. It's all about these uh, what once were rivals or this animosity that exists between us as people that through Christ, through the cross, he just abolishes it. He just breaks it down, and through Jesus, through the work of the cross, he now makes us one. That's what this whole text is all about. And so we read things that seem a little kind of crazy and weird and really awkward, especially at the front end, and you're like, why is it, why is it talking about all this stuff, right? But what Paul's getting at here is uh, 
God breaking down rivalries, God breaking down stereotypes, God breaking down what once separated us to now make us as people one. We live in a world of rivalries. We just sort of do, right? Right? Whether it be Republican, Democrat, we even have rivalries within each of those factions. We can't agree on anything anymore. We have rivalries. It's like uh, north and south, right? Even, te- even in Texas, we have rivalries, depending on what college you went to. It's like real big in Texas. If you went to this college or you went to this one, you kind of hate each other, right? But in the north, that doesn't really exist. It's not as big of a deal. We have rivalries of like PC and Mac, or I don't know if that's still one, or Google and Amazon, or right? There's just all, actually, Amazon has no rivals. They just, they've won. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fine. Coke, Pepsi, Josh told me that's not a rivalry anymore, but I'm just going to say it anyway. He said, no one drinks Pepsi. You're right. Coke, Dr. Pepper, that could be one. Right? We just live in this world. We also, and those are sort of silly ones, but there's also violent ones. We live in in a world today where there's violent differences and violent rivalries against one another. And they're so, and they're so deep-seated that they permeate all of who we are and it motivates people to take each other's lives as a result of these rivalries. That's how deep-seated these things can get due to cultural hostilities, due to racial hostilities. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the verses we just read, verses 11 through 22, Paul is describing how in Jesus, God has brought together rivals. How God has brought together enemies. How God has brought together these people and not just brought them together and we can like sit in a chair next to each other and not grit our teeth. He brought them together and he has made us friends and he's made us family, the scripture says. That's incredible. This is one of the miracles of the gospel. That God is able to make enemies, friends, and not just friends, even further, family. Members of the same body. Oneness, Paul says in this text. So the cross of Jesus has both a vertical effect, a very real vertical effect, and a very real horizontal effect. Meaning, uh, this is what we read last week, Paul describes this vertical effect that the cross has, and it gives us the, it gives us the right to be children of God, how we're made right with God, that the cross now, uh, though we were wretched and sinful and alienated and far away and we couldn't get it right, but God came down and by grace saved us through faith and now we're made children of God and we're right with God. But it also has a vertical effect, or a horizontal effect rather. And this is what Paul's talking about here. And this is now that we are reconciled as God's children, now that we are reconciled and made right, and the blood of Christ now covers our sin, has washed us clean, the horizontal effect now is that now God is bringing together himself a people. People that were once have animosity toward one another, he's making as brothers and sisters through his blood. That's what this is talking about. So we believe, as we've been reading through this, that sin has reduced us all to the same level. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That was last week. 
We believe that Christ has died for all, that the gospel has gone out to all. We believe that when a man stands in the grace of God, that God so loved the world that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life, that now because of that grace that Jesus did and he bestows upon his that believe, we are all on the same equal playing field. No one has a leg up. We're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. That was last week. We believe that. We believe that about the condemnation of man because of sin and the, exalta- and the exaltation of Christ, all that Christ has done, that there is, the Bible says, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man nor male nor female. And we also believe, as we just read, what Paul's trying to teach us as the church, that horizontally God reconciles all man on the same playing field. So when Jesus hung on a cross 2,000 years ago, you had a thief on one side, a criminal. You had John, the apostle. You had Mary Magdalene, one of questionable character. And you had the executioner, all on the same ground looking up at Christ. Right? Male, female, Jew, and Greek. Bad guy, good guy, all the same in Christ. The playing field was leveled by the blood of Christ. So there's no leverage to get yourself a leg up. That's what we believe academically in our mind, that the cross reconciles. And so verses 11 through 22, what we just read, is essentially, I'm going to call it, the collateral damage that the cross does to our self-absorbed notions. We don't really like this part. This is where it gets hard for us. It's the collateral damage of our vertical alignment and reconciliation, and now it has horizontal effects that we have to live in, right? And it's where uh, our heart and our mind have a lot of catching up to do oftentimes. And so what it does, it's it's the collateral damage and what it does to our self-absorbed notions and our divided nature that we live our lives in. And what this verse is meant to do, what this collection of verses is meant to do, it's supposed to shake us. Um, It's supposed to be a little bit like, what? Really? And it's meant to shake the world that we live in in a profound way. So at the time when this was written, there was this very hostile rivalry that existed that was very deep, and it lasted for generations and generations and generations, and it was very, very complex. And it was the division and the rivalry between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles were just non-Jews. So unless you grew up uh, in the Jewish race, we're Gentiles, speaking of us, Jew and Gentile. So the word Gentile, uh, when you get down to it, uh, the, the meaning, uh, where we get our word uh, ethne, so verse 11, ethne, it's where we get our word ethnicity, ethnicities. So if you, you, you could, and it make for an interesting word study, replace the word Gentile with ethnicities, it makes for an interesting read that I think is almost easier for us to digest at times. So there's this group of people, and then there's all these other ethnicities, right? So one of the beauties of the cross 
One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that under the cross of Jesus, he brings together all ethnicities, all other people, all people groups, every tribe, tongue, and nation, the scriptures say. And so that type of unity that's talked about is different than any that is seen in society. And what it's not, what Paul is not advocating is that all of these Gentiles now have to become Jewish. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, God through Jesus is making something new. He's not saying you all have to adhere to this cultural normative that happened at this place of the world and you all have to move there, go there. No, he's saying God through Christ, through his redeeming, reconciling work is making for himself a new people, one new people. And so the divide with uh, Jew and Gentile was pervasive. I'll I'll highlight a few of the differences so we can maybe understand the gravity of what's happening here. One, it was religious. The Gentiles didn't know the God of the Bible. They didn't know the God of Israel. So there was this great massive chasm and it was a religious divide. So when the Jews looked at the Gentiles, they knew, you don't know my God and you can't know my God because it's by blood, right? So they had this idea. It was cultural. The Jews had all these rituals, they had all these feasts, they had all these ceremonies that distinguished them from all the other nations. So there was a great cultural divide. And the the divide was racial. The Jews could boast by having the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flowing through their veins, and others could not. And the cross is at the center of bringing that all together. That's what Paul is talking about here. The cross, Jesus, is at the very epicenter of colliding these two worlds to make something new in God's great providence. So this passage, it doesn't really tell us uh, what we're supposed to do as the church per se. It's not like a playbook. But this passage right here, if you want to block it out, is an identity passage. This tells us who we are as the church doesn't exactly say, well, this is what you're supposed to do. This tells us who we are. It gives us the correct uh, lenses to view who we are as the church. And so what Paul is going to do in this passage is give us a series of reminders. So he's going to have us look back at these three reminders, and he's going to say, remember this, remember this, remember this. And so the first one is the bad news. And he's going to give it to Gentiles, and I'll say us, right, you and I, those that. Uh, are not Jews. And he's going to say that we were once alienated from God. Listen to verse 11. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles, he's talking to this church, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning this this is what the Jews called you, which was made in the flesh by hands. Now, I don't want to get into the, the medical nuance of circumcision. If you have any questions, you can ask your small group leader or ask Josh right after service. <clears throat> He'd be happy to <clears throat> go into all of that with you. But what Paul's doing essentially here uh, is he's highlighting a very real, physical, visible difference. There is a physical, visible difference between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is highlighting it. He's, he's calling it out. And he goes on to note how through the work of Christ, their physical difference is of ultimately no significance any longer. 
that doesn't hold merit for you. It doesn't guarantee you favor with God. In other words, in the kingdom of God, our physical and visible differences are of ultimately no significance. They don't gain you a leg up. It's not about skin color. It's not about external appearance. It's about the heart. It's about our hearts. And Paul says, well, why is this? Because it's made in the flesh by hands, right? It's something that humans have done. It was meant to show something of the heart, but you've made it into something just physical. In other words, it has no more abiding consequences any longer if you're just going to take it for the physical. Paul says, essentially, you folks that look differently, all of you of different ethnicities, remember that at one time you were separated because of this. He says, remember, at one time you had no hope because of this. Remember, he says. And then he goes on to say, okay, you were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants, to the promises, and having no hope and without God in the world. That's a bleak outcome. Thanks, Paul, for that reminder. So it says, you were separated, you have different ethnicities, you Gentiles, you were separated from the covenants of God. You didn't know what God said. You were separated from the promises that God made to God's people because you didn't know what God said. It wasn't to you. You were missing the covenants. You missed the promised Messiah. And so essentially, you and I, he's, he's telling us here, we, we're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We don't trace our origins back to the womb of Sarah or Rebekah, Right? in the 12 tribes. We find our origins biblically at the Tower of Babel, of confusion. We scattered and adopted all these different languages. We're hopeless. And godless, it says, without God. And so while God did plan on blessing all the nations through Israel, the Gentiles didn't know this because they didn't know the promises of God. They didn't have this great hope. And since they didn't know, since they didn't have the promises of God, since they weren't in the commonwealth of Israel, they opted for idols. They opted to worship other things. They opted to give their hearts and their time and their sacrifices and their energy to all these different things. They opted for idols instead of God, that which is less than God. And they suppressed the truth, Romans 1, if you want to read more about that. Because they didn't know God. They didn't know hope. So church, if you are going to be filled with hope, we all want that, right? And we all want hope. Paul is, is going to tell us, you have to look to Christ. That's the only place you're going to find it. And if you try to find it in other places, it won't satisfy and you won't find it. And you'll be left without hope and you'll be left without God. He equates knowing God with hope. To know Christ is to know and have hope. And so if we continue to remember where we come from, we're gonna, Paul is setting up this, we're going to live with this gratitude, right? This gratitude toward God and this love toward others. Why? Because Paul is going to remind us of the second reality for those of us in Christ. He's going to say, this is what Christ has done for us, reconciliation. Though you were alienated, remember he did this again last week, right? 
We were without hope. We were, we were marred in sin. We couldn't fix it ourselves but God. Here he gives us another one of these very similar statements, another but statement. Listen to this, verse 13. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, is that four? Verse four. <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then down in verse 14, he goes on, Christ has broken down in his flesh this dividing wall of hostility. All the hostility that existed, Christ himself and his flesh has broken it down. Verse 16, through the cross, Jesus has killed the hostility. So what we're seeing in this passage is the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. For you to know God and to be reconciled to each other, the cross is necessary. That's what Paul's elevating here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, you want unity? You want reconciliation with each other? You want peace with one another? God had to do something first. And he sent Christ to the cross. And in doing so, a people that placed their trust and hope in Jesus, in that Jesus obliterates the wall of hostility that exists between us and all the prejudices and physical, visible differences that we see and have against one another, he begins to break down those walls. It's incredible. It's almost utopian-like. Nowhere else does religion promise this type of thing. No other religion does. It's always, no, you adopt this cultural norm because this is what was normative, and you all end up looking and acting the same. Christ says, no, I'm coming so that I'm going to produce something new. Something new. So you have the centrality of the cross. Vertically and horizontally, the cross brings us together. And so notice, even today, church, this isn't, a lot of times we talk about this stuff, you're like, what? Well, that's great. That's helpful for like 2,000 years ago, right? What does this mean? Like, what, what do I do with this stuff? Paul's telling us that this has, even today, benefits and realities and relevance today for us. That we receive the benefits today, now, of that historic death. That the cross has implications on our life today. That's why Paul says, in Christ... We find ourselves in Christ. Not just knowing about what took place, we find ourselves in Christ. Practically, in reality. So there's something happening now, today, as we're in Christ. He took our place that we might be declared righteous. And we now receive the benefits of forgiveness and righteousness and new life of being called one new man. In Christ. So the cross is central. There's a lot of folks today uh, that don't like talking a lot about the cross. It's bloody, all this blood language, all this, ugh, it's like, do we really have to talk about all that? But the blood of the cross reminds us of what God has done for us in his great love. Um, blood also reminds us of the gravity of our sin. It talks about it at the very beginning. Read Genesis. Can't get away from it. And so some think the cross is overemphasized. There are 
dozens, dozens, hundreds of books written about how evangelicals or the church has overemphasized the substitution of Jesus through the cross and the blood that he shed. Uh, that were too atonement-centric. That Jesus would kind of live the life to give us an example that we could be, serve one another and be helpful to one another, right? But I think we're not atonement-centric enough, quite honestly. It's the cross that we commend to other people. That's what we commend to others. The cross is our very hope in life and in death. If we don't preach the cross, if we don't preach that Jesus went to the cross, died the death that we should have died, and lived the life that we could never live, rose and conquered death so that we, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life, then we've missed the mark. All, all we can really commend to people is self-help and some, maybe some helpful worldly advice that will help for a short time but do us no good at the end. Without the cross... The church is just peddling good advice and not giving the life-giving good news of Jesus. A few years back, Ash and I went to, um, we, we, were, we were moving and our kids were growing up, moving out of cribs and we needed a new bed, right? And so we did the trickle-down thing. We gave an old bed to one of the kids and we're like, we're going to get a new bed, right? It had been like 13 years, so let's, we got a new bed. So we it was back before they, you could like order a mattress on the internet and they'd send it to you in a bag this big and they cut it open and it's like this plush, amazing mattress for $9.99 or whatever it was. So we had to walk into one of those stores. It was grand opening, President's Day mattress sale and honor George Washington with a great new mattress. And so we walked into one of those places and uh, we walk in and uh, the, there's the guy, he kind of, he walks up and he's like, hey, what can I help you with? I'm like, do you guys sell any beds here? He, uh, that was kind of his reaction too. It's like, oh, that wasn't very funny, but <laughs> all right. It was just, yeah, or like same thing, you go in a coffee shop, what can I get you? Do you guys sell coffee here? And it's kind of cute and funny and they think it's funny, kind of. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, uh, yeah, I can. And I start, we start laying down on like a hundred random mattresses trying to, like, oh, this one feels nice, right? Or It would be weird if I walked into that place and I was like, golly, you know what? My wife and I are having some issues. We're wondering if we can come sit on your mattress and you can help us work through a few things, man. <laughs> um, I just sell mattresses, bro. I don't know how to do that, right? It's just like, or can you make me a cup of coffee? And we'd like to sit on your mattress and drink a cup of coffee. Uh, no, that's not what we're all about, Right? But I think about that sometimes in regard to the church. We kind of awkwardly laugh, but it's like, but what are we commending to people? What are we giving people? What are we showing them? What are we pointing them to? What are we pointing them toward? Why are we doing this? Why are we gathering? What's the point? Maybe like, well, I ask myself that every Sunday, but I still have to go, right, right? It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. If you walk in here and maybe you're new with us or maybe you've been with us for a while and you're wondering, what do, what do you have to offer me? What would, you, what would you say it is you do around here? One of those moments, right? Well, let me tell you. We offer you the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to we highlight Jesus and the good news and the good work that he accomplished on our behalf that we can never do on our own. We want to be worshipers of him because of what he's done. We're going to offer you community. 
a people rallied around that good news, a new people that he's gathering to himself to declare and demonstrate this new, uh, this, this work of the gospel in a group of people. And then, and then ultimately, we want to elevate the mission of the kingdom of God. That we would be a people not just inwardly focused on ourselves, that we finally found a group that gets us, but we would be sent out with this light of the good news of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would just go over and over and over again. All the other things that we do are byproducts of what we want to see that happen ultimately. The gospel of Jesus, the community of God, and the mission of the kingdom of God being sent forth and perpetuated here amongst us and undeserving people because of all that he's done. That's what we commend, and it's all because of the cross. It's the good news of the gospel that builds us into a new people. It's the good news of the gospel that builds us into a new community and that sends us out on his mission, reorients our priorities. Jesus is the point. The cross of Jesus is the point. So if you're looking for, um, I don't know, best tips for healthy living, if you're looking for your best life now or your best life tomorrow or yesterday, if you're looking for great keto results for, what, for 2019 or how to raise the perfect kids, I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't know what to commend to you with that. I'm not the expert at that. But this is what we have. We have a church of broken people that don't have the answers to all that stuff. Um, But what we have and, and what we've discovered is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so as a result, that just leaves us no room for selfish agendas anymore. We can't say, yeah, I'm the expert on that. Come listen to me. I'll teach you how to do all that stuff and fix all those problems. No, I don't know. I don't know how to fix all those. But I know that the power of the cross through the blood of Jesus, God makes dead things alive. And that God surrounds us as broken people with his people that we could rally together and find healing and forgiveness. And he takes what once were enemies and makes them into friends and family. And in doing so, we get to see a glimpse of the kingdom of God, even here on earth. So we're just a group of people that we're, we're stumbling into green pastures at times and besides still waters. And I'm okay with that because it's all by the providence of God. And we want to be a church, and we want to commend to you a a gospel that is not just good advice to follow, to fix yourself. We want to commend to you a gospel that is good news because Jesus has done it and said it is finished. And we place all of our cards, we place all of our chips in on him. And it's when we do that that we begin to see new life pop up. And we begin to see light where there once was only darkness. And we begin to see marriages reconciled. We begin to see addictions diminish. We begin to see uh, uh, prejudices break down. We begin to see the dividing walls of hostility begin to crumble when we cling to him as our hope. So we commend here the cross of Jesus. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be about. It is of utmost importance. So we hold that out because as you hold out the gospel, 
What Paul's saying here is when you hold that out, you're holding out hope to people. That's hope. That's where hope, that's where you find it. That's the source of it. All these other places that we try to grab and grasp and have and sink our teeth into, they're just, they're, they're but shadows of it. They satisfy for a time, but in the end, they're not going to last. And some of them can even be good, but they won't endure you. So we hold up Christ. And as a result, when we hold him up, and we look at him and look at what he's done, verse 14 happens, for he himself is our peace. He brings us peace, what we all want, we're all searching for. Jesus is the peacemaker. He himself is our peace. Paul says peace is found in a person, and that's Christ. He was prophesied in the Old Testament as the Prince of Peace. He comes preaching a gospel of peace. And so how people who were at odds with God could now be made friends with God and be made brothers and sisters with his only son. He himself is our peace. How has he done this? Verse 14 through 17, he's made us one. He's broken down the wall. Christ's blood has obliterated this old, long-standing division between Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the means by which we are all one body. He's not making one like the other. He's not saying, you must assimilate into them, or you must assimilate into them. He's saying, no, I'm making something new. I'm doing something new. Verse 15, and he created in himself one new man. Jesus is abolishing something old, which has led to something new. One new humanity that Christ is creating. We love to make fences today as people. But we do it in all types of ways. We build fences around people that are different than us. We build fences around people. Sometimes we just build fences around people because we don't want to be around people. We just, we're just, a lot of us are just bent that way. Um, we build fences around people that don't look like us, that don't have the same cultural upbringing as us, and we like to keep others at arm's length. Well, here's an application from this verse, these verses that we read, is that that fence building that we uh, do as self-protecting measures, uh, a lot of times we call it racism or culturalism, different cultures, different races, different people that look differently than us, it has um, no place in the kingdom of God. It cannot be justified. And it has to be resisted. Because we're one new man. Diversity in the church um, is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. And it's to be celebrated, and it's to be worked toward. God has to rewire stuff in us in order for us to even walk in that appropriately many times. It's to be celebrated. It pictures heaven. Heaven, there's going to be all sorts of different people, all sorts of different languages, all sorts of different colors. And that's the way God made it. Racism says that I'm trying to make you into my image. And if you don't, you need to stay away. God says, I'm forming 
a new people into my image, and they together are one new man. And in doing so in the church, they can look down and see a new heart was given to a new people by God's grace. Verse 16, he reconciled us both to God in one body. Paul speaks of this double reconciliation that takes place. He says that hostility has been put to death. Uh, John Stott, great theologian, said, God turned away his own wrath, and we, seeing his great love, turned away ours also, meaning toward each other. The hostilities come to an end because of the death of Jesus. So Christians are to be a people who forgive one another because of the forgiveness of Christ. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Father, forgive us. We forgive us as we forgive others. So church, God wants to do more through our unity than he wants to do through disunity. God will do more through our oneness under Christ and his cross than he will do through our hostility and fence building against others or even your isolation from others. He's made us to be one. How? By preaching peace, he says. Christ proclaims peace. Christ sends his apostles to preach peace and reconciliation. And now he sends us to do the very same thing. And he says, in doing so, those who are far off and those who are near, most interpret those, those Jews and the Gentiles are brought in as one. And he gives us access to God as a result of this oneness. Listen to this last, these last verses, then we're done. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We now have access to God. Notice the Trinitarian language. This is great. Through him, Christ, we both have access to one Spirit through the Father, right? This is the Trinity again that pops up. We're one body under Christ. And so here at the very end, as Paul wraps up this thought of unity, he addresses two things. And these are important and we won't spend a lot of time. He addresses the universal church in verse 22 or verse 21 and the local church in verse 22. So here's the local church. You also. So Christ was the cornerstone of this holy temple that's being built up, the universal church. God is doing this through the cross, reconciling people, breaking down walls, breaking down fences. And he looks at this local church. He looks at you and I here today. And he says, you also, church, are being built up together into something, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul addresses the universal body and then the local body. In our day, it's, we're all real hip on the universal church. We love it. Oh, we're part of the universal church. I love being part of the universal church. 
It's amazing. Christ is the cornerstone. He holds it together. But I think in our culture, in our day, we are very weak on being accountable and being in and being present and being fully invested in a local church. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told how to live our life or what we should think or how we should interpret things. We're just like, oh, I just, I'm a part of the universal church. Right? But Jesus says, Paul tells us, no. Yes, we're part of the universal church. We reflect him. But even you, locally, all these different expressions of the body of Christ, he's building you up into something. He's forming you into something that you might be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in a local assembly. He's calling us to invest in people, to break down these fences, to see this reality play out universally, yes, cognitively, that we would understand this. We'd want to live that out across the globe. But where does it start? Right here. It's bubbling up right here in all these different expressions of his body that will pop up and will follow this way, the way of Christ. Invest in the local body. Love and serve those who are far off, may not look like you, may not act like you, but the cross of Christ has reconciled us all together that we might be one. And in doing so, we display the kingdom of God to others. Let's pray together, church. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, I pray we as a people, <coughs> might live in that. The truth that you've given to us, Lord, it's, it is a, uh, it's hard to do at times maybe based on how we were raised, maybe based on uh, our notions of different people, maybe based on uh, whatever else it is. God, I pray that you remove uh, anything that's not of you in our hearts and our minds and you replace it with this idea of the unity that is brought and built by the blood of Christ through the cross. And that that would be what we would commend, one first to our hearts, that it would just abolish any dividing walls we might have in our hearts and that it would spill out into others in our community, in our neighborhoods, into um, people that we know that we might be able to invite them into what you would call one new man that displays and reflects your goodness and your character to us. Lord, we need you, Jesus, to do that. Would you help us as your people? Would you grow us into that as your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship in church.